Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. This week continues our series, The Story. Enjoy and thanks for listening. There are many stories about the founding fathers of our nation, their leadership, their wisdom. Their willingness to risk is what made the launch of our great nation so memorable. There is a lesser-known story told, though, of George Washington that is kind of interesting. And there's no evidence that these events actually took place, but the story has been around for a long time. So the story goes that a group of people came to George Washington and offered him the opportunity to be the king of America. And they wanted him to establish a new monarchy, which is something that they were used to and something that was happening in many countries around the world at that time. And so Washington listened to their pleas and what they were saying and then looked at them and said, no, no king. That's what we left behind, no king. It may have happened like this. Lore has it that President Washington was so well-liked after his revolutionary victory that a group of citizens frustrated with the Continental Congress floated the idea of a coup d'etat and the installation of King George and the creation of an American monarchy. But Washington, who believed that anyone might make for a good leader, staunched the idea and eventually relinquished his power as commander-in-chief. Eventually, though, George Washington did take the oath of office, and he became our very first president. But he said no to the monarchy. No king. No king. There is a rumor that during the revolutionary days, there was a phrase thrown out among those who were leading and fighting, and again, there's no evidence for this, but there, it has become something of folklore, and the phrase, the model that they continually threw out to each other was this, no king, but King Jesus. No king, but King Jesus. And as we approach the story today and look in on the children of Israel, there are some very interesting things that are happening in relationship to their kings. They are now a divided nation, and this is something that we talked about last week, and you can see on the screen there is a map that describes what happened when the once nation of Israel divided into two different parts. There's the northern kingdom known as Israel, and then there is the southern kingdom known as Judah. And instead of Them being one powerful nation, they were now two weaker, smaller nations. During their time, they were ruled by 39 different kings. 39 different kings. Of those 39 kings, only five were considered good kings. Really kind of a remarkable stat. Out of 39 kings, only five were good. Only five said yes to God. 
We want to follow him, and we want to lead in his ways, and we want this to be a nation that really honors God. Only five of the 39 did that. The 34 others were a complete disaster, and things were quite a mess. It was also during this time that God sent prophets to the kings and to the people. The prophets were these individuals that were the voice of God. So God would get with these individual prophets and say, here's what I want the kings and my people to know. Here's what I want them to do. Here's how I want them to behave. Here's the next thing that they need to accomplish. And God would give that information to a specific prophet, and then the prophet would go to the kings, or he would go to all of the people and say, here's the voice of God. Here's what he wants for you. And here's what you need to do next. But here's the deal with the prophets. Nobody really liked them. And by and large, they were ignored with their information. And as good as they were and as convincing as their arguments for change and reformation, it seems like there is absolutely nothing that can stop the shipwreck of these two nations. Last week, I talked about a chart that I wanted you guys to see that was available for you out at the Just For You station in the lobby. It was a chart of prophets and all the different kings of the northern kingdom and kings of the southern kingdom. And I told you to go out there and look at that. And wouldn't you know, those rascals at 915 took all of the charts. (laughs) I guess that's what they get for coming early, right? Or what you get for coming late. So... Uh, apparently, some of them are even offering them for sale between the two services, so kind of creative. But I want to let you know there are charts available today, and I would really encourage you, go out there, pick that up, and just kind of read through that, because it is fascinating information about these different kings of Israel, the different kings of Judah, and the prophets, and who spoke to whom, and the different years that they reigned, and all of that information is available for you. I would encourage you to pick that up. But I want to pause for a moment. Because I think one of the remarkable things that falls out of this time period in Israel's and Judah's history is the patience of God and how grace-filled he is in how he responds to them. Over and over and over again, we find God's people constantly turning their backs on him, constantly avoiding the prophets and what they were saying. But yet what we discover is that God gives them opportunity after opportunity to align their story with his story. And this really is the overarching theme of the upper story of God. It's where God is saying, I love you and I want you to be a part of of my community, but you have to put me first. That's what it takes. And that's actually our upper story statement for today. This is the big idea of what God wanted. God loves us, and he wants us to be a part of his perfect community. This is what he desires for each and every one of us. And perhaps it's been a long time since you have had anyone whisper to you that they care about you 
and that you are loved. I want you to know today, as you sit here and as you take in all of this information, that this is the same message that God gives to all of us today. It's not just for his people back in this time frame. It is appropriate and good for all of us that God loves you. And let that kind of fall on you and rest in your mind right now because it's great news. God loves you, and he wants you to be a part of his perfect community. But we do have to put God first in our lives. In the lower story, though, and this will come out as we walk through this today. In the lower story, it seems that the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah just have this bent for not doing what God wants them to do. If God said, I want you to walk over here, they did a complete about face and began to just walk in this direction. But yet God was patient, filled with grace, in giving them a ton of opportunities to align their lower story with his upper story. I love you. You are my prized creation, and I want you to be a part of my perfect community, but you got to put me first. But yet, they refuse. So let's jump into the lower story now. These are the real historical events that took place. Here's what God does as he watches the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah kind of walk away from him and turn their back on him. He brings in outside pressure. And the reason God does this is because he wants his people to look up at him. And so they're refusing to do this. They're no longer listening to the prophets. And so God brings in outside pressure in order to grab their attention. And he begins with the northern kingdom of Israel. The outside pressure that God brought in was the world power at that time. They were the Assyrians. It's the equivalent of modern-day Syria. And they were big and bad, and they had an appetite for more territory and for more land. And so they come knocking on Israel's door, and they move in, and they invade, they conquer Israel, and then they deport everyone, or a good portion of the people living there, back to their country. That's the Assyrians. They were the world power. Nobody messed with them. They were really quite a mighty empire. And all of this happens in 722 B.C. So God gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for his people to change, to turn back to him. They absolutely refuse. And so God brings in the Assyrians and deports his people. And so by 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is gone. They no longer exist. They're just not there anymore. And all that's left is the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, here's what we need to know about the southern kingdom of Judah. They have a king at this time named Hezekiah. He's the one who is ruling. He is the one who is in charge, and so he's watching what's happening on the national landscape. He is completely aware of the Assyrians and what they're doing and how the northern kingdom is gone, and I'm sure there's a growing amount of fear in his life that would be natural and normal. But here's the deal with Hezekiah. Remember how I talked about there were 39 kings, 34 were bozos and really didn't want to obey God. They didn't have a heart for God. But there were five kings 
who did a great job of honoring God. Hezekiah's one of the five guys. And then the five guys got together and started a restaurant. Ah! All right, everybody still with me? You hanging with me so far? You're probably a bit hungry now, right? So Hezekiah, he is a great king. He's a great king. He desires to please God with his life. And so he comes into power and he just initiates all kinds of reformation. And Judah at this time, while they watch their northern neighbors get carried away, there's a bit of renaissance in the land of Judah. Prayers initiated again. The temple is cleaned up. They begin the process of sacrificing and honoring God, and things are in great shape. Here's what we read in 2 Kings 18. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything. It's a very strong statement. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything. And he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him. And Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. That is a remarkable set of verses. I mean, think about what's happening here. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. As a result, there was no one like him. There was no king like him before him or after him. And because he obeyed and because he did what God wanted him to do, God was with him. Just the presence of God came out of his life and he was successful, not just in a few things, but this king, after having a ton of bad kings and all of the torture that went along with not being obedient to God, here comes somebody who's just obedient and he is successful in everything that he does. What if that were said of you? That's possible. What if that were said of me? Or what if that were said of Valley Point Church? Right? Valley Point trusted in the Lord. Valley Point remained faithful to the Lord in everything and carefully obeyed. So the Lord was with them. And that can and that should be said of us. It can happen when we're obedient to God. And that's exactly what Hezekiah is leading. Things are going well in the southern kingdom. They're happy with their king. He is amazing. People are excited. They're feeling good about themselves. Everything is going well in Judah, except that it's not. And here's why. Guess who's breathing down their necks? Yeah, the world empire. They're still around, and Assyria still has an appetite for more territory and more land. They've already taken out Israel, and now they have their eyes on Judah and the prized city of Jerusalem, and they're hungry for it, and they want it, and nobody can stop them, and so their armies encroach on the city of Jerusalem, and they reach out to King Hezekiah, and they say to him, look, we're going to make a deal with you. And you need to take the deal because you really don't have a lot of options here. So here's the deal. Just surrender. Just give up and it will be okay for you. 
And if you don't, we will march in and we will annihilate you. We will take you out just like what we did for Israel. And no one can stop us. Certainly you have heard. You've watched the news. You know about our king and how terrible and how brutal he is. You're not going to be able to survive this. And so that takes us to 2 Kings chapter 18. And here is exactly what happens as they offer the deal to Hezekiah. Verse 28. Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, Listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you from my power. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely rescue us. This city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms. Here's the deal that the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards, olive groves and honey. Choose life instead of death. Do that. But the people were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah had commanded them, do not answer him. He's a creep. Don't do it. So here's verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord. He knows he's in trouble. And he doesn't have a lot of options because it's Assyria, after all. And he knows about them and their reputation and how terrible and how brutal they are. He knows what happened to their neighbors to the north. He is out of options. And so he tears his clothes and he steps into the presence of God and he prays. And here's his prayer, verse 19. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Tremendous prayer. Out of options. Uh, He's not going to run around the city and shout, blow trumpets. He's not going to do any of that. He has nothing in front of him except the temple of God and an opportunity to ask God to do something incredible. Remember how we talked about the prophets? The prophets are the voice of God, and they were the ones talking to the kings and to the people. And God would give them specific instruction and direction. Here's what's going to happen to you. Well, a contemporary of Hezekiah is a prophet named Isaiah. There's a book in the Old Testament named after Isaiah. And he lived at the same time as Hezekiah. And so along comes Isaiah the prophet after Hezekiah offers up this incredible prayer of dependence upon God. And here's what Isaiah says, verse 32. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. I want to pause there for a moment because do you remember David, the second king of a united kingdom? 
There was Saul and then there was David. And God was so pleased and happy with David that he came and he made a covenant with him. It's known as the Davidic covenant. And God said to David, I'm going to make a promise to you that someone from your family will always reign on the throne of Jerusalem. Well, here we are. And it's just another reminder of God working in the upper story about how God loves people and he fulfills his promises and he's trustworthy. He's saying, I'm not going to let Sennacherib, the king here, come into the city and take Jerusalem. For the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and I will protect it. So that night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they were like, what? (laughs) There's like corpses everywhere. Can you imagine? Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there and told everybody, that's an angry angel. Don't mess with him. I'm staying away from Jerusalem. (laughs) What we find here is that this is an amazing victory for the underdog. Hezekiah has the opportunity to stand down the most powerful army in the world, and it happens through God. It's also a powerful display of God's love for his special nation. That's what happens here. And they didn't have to run around. They didn't have to blow any trumpets. Hezekiah simply stepped into the presence of God and prayed, and God came through. And everybody knew that Hezekiah's God was a great and powerful God. Everybody knew it. Now, one would think, after observing all of this and watching this, that the people of Judah would never abandon God and never forget about God. He is so amazing. We were about to be attacked by King Sennacherib and the Assyrian army, and we know all about them, and they're terrible, and they're brutal, but God came through for us, and we know he has done it in the past. He continues to do it. King Hezekiah is being obedient to God. We're being blessed. We will never forget about God and how he comes through for us. We will just never do it. You would think that would be the story, right? Well... King Hezekiah lives out his days, he eventually passes, and his son, Manasseh, becomes king. Manasseh was not like his father. He was a clown. He really was. Because here's what he did. He initiated idol worship once again, and he brought in all kinds of disastrous influences back into the country. Manasseh was so far out there that he actually sacrificed one of his sons on the altar of a pagan idol. He killed his own kids. And so you look at this and wonder, what is God thinking about all of this activity? Here's Hezekiah, and he's a great king. He's being obedient to God, and God honors him. And then along comes Manasseh, and he reverses absolutely everything. And even though God is patient and God is filled with grace, there comes a time when he can no longer tolerate disobedience and rebellion. 
And even though he gives us opportunity after opportunity to align our lower story with his upper story, sometimes he has to bring in outside pressure. And you know that God has to be very disappointed with the nation of Judah after everything that they have observed, after his goodness, after watching the northern kingdom be deported before them, that they would get it, but they don't. They walk away from God, and Manasseh leads a whole new generation in turning their backs on the one true God, and God can't handle it anymore. These were his special people. It was through them that they were supposed to display his love to the world. And it's just a mess. It's a disaster. And one would look at all of these events in 2 Kings, and it appears that the story is in trouble. Like God said, he would rescue his people. God even promised that a future rescuer would come for all of us. But it doesn't really appear that that's going to happen. The northern kingdom is gone. The southern kingdom has turned their backs on God. Is God not truthful? Well, do you remember the prophet Isaiah? Again, he spoke to Hezekiah and other kings, and he was the voice of God that nobody really paid attention to. They didn't like him. Well, what Isaiah does during this time is that he pens some incredible words that help us to know that this future rescuer is still coming and the story is very much alive. And what is so amazing about what Isaiah pens for us is that he gives us this information about a future rescuer 700 years before the Messiah comes. And just about every biblical scholar agrees that what Isaiah writes for us is a complete reference and a pointing toward Jesus, the coming Messiah. So the northern kingdom is gone. The southern kingdom under the leadership of Manasseh is completely walking away from God. This looks like a mess. And here's what Isaiah tells us in chapter 53. He speaks of a future rescuer. It says this, he, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. And you think about what Jesus endured for all of us. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This is a rescuer. This is a redeemer who takes my sin and your sin and he carries it all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, when you walk through the trials of Jesus, you understand it was not fair what the Romans did to him. He was unjustly condemned. It was a mockery. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. 
Get this. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. What's so remarkable about Jesus, the one who eventually came and fulfilled these words, is if you know the story of his crucifixion, he was killed with a few other individuals. Who were they? Thieves. Criminals. Here's Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus arrived, saying he's going to be buried like a criminal, and he will be put in a rich man's grave. If you find your way into Matthew 27 today, you will discover that a man named Joseph of Arimathea came and took the body of Jesus and put Jesus in his tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, it says it right in Matthew 27, was a wealthy man. It's incredible. Really powerful words coming from Isaiah in the middle of a mess, saying the story is still very much alive. God is still in control. He's got this, and a future rescuer is coming. It might look really bad right now, but this future Messiah will come, and he's going to be pierced and rejected and crushed, but yet he will carry all of our sins. The story is still alive. So what about my story? How do we take all of this content and information and actually use it in our lives today? Well, I want to share two thoughts with you. Number one, seek God all of the time. And all of the time, seek God. Seek God all of the time. And all of the time, seek God. No matter what is happening in your life, seek God all of the time. And all of the time, seek God. For whatever reason, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had all of these opportunities to turn back to God, to seek him again, and they just turned their backs continually to the point where God had to bring in outside pressure. And he'll do the same for us. But we have the opportunity today to seek God all of the time. And all of the time, seek God. When it's a good day or a bad day, seek God. Whether you have good health or bad health, seek God. Whether you're happily employed or unemployed, seek God. Whether you're wealthy and there is abundance, or you're walking through a time of scarcity, seek God. When you're confident or when you're questioning, seek God. When you're content, when you're dissatisfied, seek God. When you're, you fill in the blank. Whatever is happening in your life right now, it's an opportunity to seek God. Whether it feels really good or it feels really bad, Seek God all of the time, and all of the time, seek God. And wouldn't it be great if we were a faith community who did exactly that, that no matter what was happening to us and in us and through us, that people knew that is a church that is seeking God. And so let's be that church. And in imperfect ways, let's seek God, and let's question, and let's doubt, but let's worship, and let's seek God all of the time. 
If anything comes out of the story of Hezekiah and his good days and then the bad days of Manasseh and everything that happened to the nation of Israel, it's an opportunity for us to evaluate and to look in and say, I can seek God today. And that's exactly what he wants for us. Secondly, prayer and purity move the heart of God. Those two things combine. Prayer and purity move the heart of God. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did. He was pure before God. His motives, his leadership, and he instituted prayer. Again, he prayed himself when there were no more options for him. He cleaned up the temple and he cleaned up people's lives. Prayer and purity moved the heart of God. Let me ask you this. Do you want the blessing of God in your life? It's a great question. Something for all of us to consider. Do you want the blessing of God in your life? My guess is you do, and that's why you're here. That's a great thing. So what initiates, what brings in the blessing of God in our lives? I believe from Hezekiah, we learn it's prayer and purity. And when we step into these areas, the blessing of God just comes. Can't always be explained. It won't always be understood. But when we're engaged in prayer and purity on the inside, on the outside, it just makes God really happy. And his blessing will fall on us. And so I'd encourage you to evaluate those areas in your life today. Prayer and purity, it moves the heart of God. 2 Kings 18 Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. That's just what he did. And there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything. And he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given to Moses. That's the purity part. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. So Valley Point, trusted in the Lord. Valley Point remained faithful to the Lord in everything and carefully obeyed. So the Lord was with them. The Lord was with us. See, God loves us, and he desperately wants us to be a part of his perfect community. But we must put him first in our lives. Father, we're thankful for some time just to walk through the story of King Hezekiah and the Assyrians who are knocking on his door. What an incredible reminder, God, that you've given us today from your word about how prayer and purity move your heart. And we need to be seeking you all of the time. And God, when we do that, I believe your blessing will fall into our lives And God, we'll still walk through difficult days, but yet in the middle of that, we'll seek you still. And God, there will be successes and there will be wins and joy and happiness, and we need to seek you there as well. Sometimes we forget about seeking you when things are okay. It's when things get a little desperate, all of a sudden we cry out. And that's okay, but you want us to seek you all of the time. And so, God, I pray that as we walk out of here in just a moment, that we would determine that this is what we're going to do, that we're just going to seek God all of the time. 
And we're going to evaluate these areas of prayer and purity in our lives to make sure that we're honoring you. So God, I pray that you give us all the courage and the confidence as we step out in just a bit to do exactly what it is that you've laid on our hearts. And God, as we move into a time of communion now and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the one who was pierced and crushed for us, the one whose life was cut down in midstream in order to carry the weight of our sins, to pay the price for our mistakes. I pray that this would begin in us a time where we're seeking you and thanking you, praying and initiating purity in our lives. So God, use this time to shape us and to help us be completely obedient to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.